0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio.
1: Hello. In 1904, a struggling young writer wrote the following words to a friend, quote, I think we ought to read only the kind of books that wound and stab us. If the book we're reading doesn't wake us up with a blow to the head, what are we reading it for? So that it will make us happy, as you write, good lord, We would be happy precisely if we had no books. And the kind of books that make us happy are the kind we could write ourselves if we had to. But we need the books that affect us like a disaster, that grieve us deeply, like the death of someone we loved more than ourselves, like being banished into forests far from everyone, like a suicide. A book must be the axe for the frozen sea inside us. That is my belief. End quote. The struggling young writer was Franz Kafka, known today as one of the greatest writers of his age, the author of celebrated novels like The Trial and The Castle, and shorter works like The Hunger Artist, and above all, his masterpiece, The Metamorphosis. He's the literary patron saint of the very literary city of Prague, if not all of Europe. In 1941, the poet W. H. Auden said, quote, had one to name the artist who comes nearest to bearing the same kind of relation to our age that Dante, Shakespeare, and Goethe bore to theirs. Kafka is the first one would think of. End quote. His name has become an adjective, Kafkaesque, which the Oxford Dictionary calls characteristic or reminiscent of the oppressive or nightmarish qualities of Franz Kafka's fictional world, or, as Webster's would have it, having a nightmarishly complex, bizarre, or illogical quality. And his life, or at least much of it, has passed down into legend. The quiet law clerk, toiling away by day in a faceless bureaucracy located in the shadow of a towering castle, then returning home to escape into literary fantasies at night, writing stories that were necessary for his own survival, his own sanity, but not perhaps ever good enough for his taste and sensibility and sense of perfection. He was never quite in love, though he was engaged several times. He grew sick, and his final request to his friend was a request that all his remaining papers, including unpublished stories, unfinished novels, letters, sketches, and journals, be burned. His friend ignored the request, and we are left with a portrait of one of the seminal writers of his era, one of the most sensitive and perceptive minds of the last two centuries, as recorded in letters and sketches and, above all, his art. His life outside of his fiction was dominated by unhappiness, and yet, I will suggest today, there was a single night that changed everything that set him on his course, a night when he took his metaphorical axe and hammered away at his own frozen sea. A night when this miserable, impoverished creature found himself the king of the world. Franz Kafka, today on the history of literature. <laughs> Okay, here we go. I'm Jack Wilson. Thanks for checking out the podcast. I'm glad you could join us. Franz Kafka today. What a treat. We're going to have to do a whole series of shows on Kafka, of course. He's too important and too fascinating to cover in just one show. We'll give him the Shakespeare treatment. Kafka's stories are bottomless for me. Some are simple. Some you can get your mind around in one shot. They're often stark. I like the strange ones. The short, fragmentary ones, the quick bursts, in fact I love those, I probably love those best of all, but they are bursts, they're not exactly bottomless, but his longer works, the metamorphosis for example, have so many layers, they're so deep, and they've been so influential that they deserve an entire episode all to themselves, but today I just want to focus on one of the, oh excuse me, oh there's someone at the door, hello? Ah, who's this? Hello. (laughs) We have a guest.
2: Hello, I'm Emily Dickinson. I've written a poem in honour of that impudent scallywag, Jack Wilson. Oh, Emily. Here it is. My life has stood, a loaded gun, in corners till today. I listened to his podcast and sent him some money. Won't you please support the cause of literature in the arts?
1: Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Emily Dickinson. How appropriate. I knew that Emily Dickinson would be a fan of the Kafka show. Somehow I just knew that. If only the two of you could have met. I expect you'd have gotten along. Wouldn't that have been perfect? Emily and Franz may be a friendship, a courtship, a marriage. <laughs> a marriage through letters only, an epistolary marriage. Somehow, even though this was impossible, it makes me sad that that never happened. Well, in any case, Emily has chosen to support the show. <laughs> She's signed up to help out the impudent Scalawag for which the impudent Scalawag is very grateful honored even. As far as I know, this is the first Patreon account she has ever signed up for, the first podcast she's ever listened to and supported, the first time she's even used the internet for that matter. Don't just take my word for it. You can check the history books, people. You won't find an earlier use. If you'd like to join Emily in supporting the show, you can head on over to patreon.com slash literature to sign up for a modest monthly donation using your credit card or a PayPal account or you can go to historyofliterature.com slash shop and support the show by buying a mug or a tote bag or simply buying me a virtual coffee. Those cost $5 a piece, just like real coffee if you're living here in the States and you like to get whipped cream and that kind of thing on your coffee. <laughs> and you can buy as many as you'd like for your old friend Jack Wilson. We'll get together in our cyber cafe and lift our cups to Emily and Franz and toast the marriage that never was, but should have been. Chink! (laughs) That will be fun. I cannot wait. This week, I want to thank new patron Debbie, who has generously signed up to support the cause of literature and the arts and the History of Literature podcast, as has our new patron Adrian. Many thanks to you, Debbie and Adrian, for your generous support of the show. Okay, let's get back to Kafka.
0: Franz Kafka
1: was born on july third of eighteen eighty three in Prague, the city where he lived all of his life. His parents, Herman and Julie Kafka, were shopkeepers, selling umbrellas and other fancy goods. Franz was the oldest of six. There were three boys and three girls. Both of Franz's brothers died in infancy. His three sisters all outlived him. We can fill in the barest bones of biography before filling that biography in with the details that most interest us for the story we're telling today. He studied law. He found work at a state-run insurance company, where he both analyzed claims for work-related injuries and visited factories and attempted to minimize accidents. And at night, he wrote under a sign above his writing table that said a single word, wait. He had friends whose company he enjoyed, especially his fellow writer Max Brode, He published a few sketches and stories in his lifetime. He was moderately successful, if not the figure we ascribe to him today. And he was deeply, darkly unhappy. His job, of course, is one source of unhappiness. The insurance company appears to have been impossibly burdened by red tape and officiousness. Ambitious people on a road to nowhere, but trying extremely hard to get there. And a pointlessness that registered particularly hard For the sensitive Kafka. He didn't really want to study law in the first place. Here's a quote from Kafka's biographer, Richie Robertson His overwhelming sense of guilt prevented him from enjoying his school studies, so convinced was he that he would fail the exam at the end of each year. And though he always passed, he could be interested in his studies only, as he puts it, to the extent that a bank official who has defrauded his employers, can be interested in day-to-day transactions while he waits to be found out. So, since every subject was unattractive, he might as well study one, law, which was completely repellent. In the months before the exams, Kafka recalled bitterly, I suffered great nervous tension and lived on an intellectual diet of sawdust, which, moreover, had been previously chewed by a thousand mouths end quote. We're going to trace Kafka's choice of career and his unhappiness at work back further. The key there, as Robertson notes, is his overwhelming sense of guilt. Where did that come from? We can find some origins for it, because Kafka himself identified them. But first, let's talk about Kafka and love. He had relationships with four women, and he was engaged at least twice. None of it was totally satisfying, though I think you could say he was In love, sort of, he was in love but not happy. Most of the time he was not sure he was actually in love. He seems to have admired the women, but he also comes across as needy and self-loathing and someone not really well-equipped for any kind of romantic relationship. It's been suggested he was homosexual or asexual and we don't really have evidence for either. I'm going to trace this back as well his views of love, his ability to be in love. I think there's another source here beyond just sexuality. But first, let me give you a flavor of Franz trying to be in love, trying to have a relationship. His first romantic encounter was with Felice Bauer, an intelligent, well-read, extremely competent professional woman. Had Kafka not been so knotted up himself, so torn, such a Walking set of anxieties and frustrations and regrets, and overwhelmed by such a long held, deeply rooted bundle of guilt and fear and his sense of oppression and need for freedom. In other words, if he was not Franz Kafka, things might have worked out fine with Felice Bauer. They met 17 times, they were engaged twice, they wrote letters frequently. But here's the difference here's what it's like if you've ever seen Debbie Downer on Saturday Night Live, that sketch, and you imagine that Debbie Downer was also a literary genius, you'd get a sense of the dynamic as it plays out in their letters. Here's biographer Robertson again. Quote, The relationships he had when on holiday in the resorts of Zuckmantel in 1905 and Riva in 1913 were casual, untroubled affairs. The prospect of marriage to the supremely competent Felice, however, confirmed Kafka's sense of inadequacy. It also meant replicating the stifling family life in which he had grown up. Felice took him shopping for furniture, which made him think of tombstones, and insisted that their flat must have must have a personal touch, a phrase Kafka hated. At the official engagement, he felt, quote, bound like a criminal, end quote. <laughs> like a criminal, shopping for furniture, makes reminds him of tombstones. I feel sorry for Felice, who's trying so hard. She mentions in one letter that maybe, once they're married, she could sit by his chair while he writes. <laughs> Poor Felice. You can understand what she's saying. She's trying to say she recognizes how important writing is to him, and she doesn't want to interfere with that, and in fact, she'll be supportive and we will sit beside him. It's a very nice gesture. You can imagine her thinking that this would be a nice thing to say. But if you know anything about Kafka, who feared being bound like a criminal, you'd know how this change to his writing situation would affect him. Him, And in fact, he, he, (laughs) after she wrote, maybe I could sit next to you while you're writing, he responded, actually, My dream situation is to have a writing desk in the innermost room of a cellar, and my writing would only be interrupted by walks to fetch my meals at the cellar door. (laughs) So let's get married. Felice broke off the engagement in 1914, which Robertson speculates was because she found him exasperating. Though the two stayed in touch and they got engaged for a second time in July of 1917, we'll see more about what drove Kafka toward marriage and kept driving him there, even as he resisted almost everything about it. In a moment. Kafka also fell in love with a woman who was more his intellectual equal, or at least shared more of his literary interests. Belena Jasenska was herself a journalist and author and a very astute critic. She admired Kafka and his work, which was then trickling out into the public. And eventually, she wrote a fine obituary of Kafka, one of the best contemporary obituaries that he received. She understood his writing, and she understood him. And Kafka's letters to her seem to recognize that. He's confident in his tone, not quite as needy and controlling as in his letters to Felice, and he seems more eager to please. She complained about Kafka, to his friend Max Brode, noting how completely impractical he was at small things like going to the post office and mailing a letter. <laughs> it's funny to think about, actually, this patron saint of bureaucratic bewilderment encountering a huge system like the postal system with all its many parts and then just breaking down at the counter. One imagines his head spinning with wonder and estrangement as he contemplates the deep disorganizational chaos that underlies something as modest as buying a stamp. Milena also complained that Kafka revered people who were merely competent, fascinated by their ability to get things done. In this, he included Felice, his erstwhile fiancé, and Milena's own husband, whom Milena didn't like because he was a notorious womanizer but they could get things done and so kafka treated them with a kind of awe that irritated milena on the positive side she noted that he had a mystical apprehension of the world as infinitely strange which she admired especially in a writer and she said this quote he also thinks he is the he is the one who is guilty and weak and yet there is nobody else in the world with his immense strength this absolute, unchallengeable need for perfection, for purity, and for truth, end quote. I don't know that anyone ever understood Kafka better in his lifetime. What we're left with by studying these doomed relationships. He had a couple others as well is a picture of a miserable person, no miserable, maybe isn't quite the right word. He's just incapable of pure happiness. He's needy and he's hard on himself, but he's also very attuned to the world, and the world is letting him down. The world has let him down with its futility and its absurdity and its lack of any reason for hope. The adults around him are caricatures, busy performing tasks that will let them, that will get them nowhere, and unable to untangle the illogicality of the world, of their circumstances, which drives them to say absurd things or perform absurd acts, and they carry out these bizarre tasks in this strange fashion with an unblinking intensity, a complete failure to recognize the contradictions and ultimate meaninglessness of what they are doing. Kafka alone sees this, and it's this visionary quality of his that makes him so praised by Auden. Auden, who was writing, we mentioned the quote before, who was writing in the middle of the second of two European-driven world wars, who was at the heart of not only the rise of industrialization, but the chaos of an industrialized world spinning apart into monstrosity. All in all, it was a rough bit of living for Franz Kafka. But let's get to the best night of his life. We'll have that story after this. So, I said there were a few different strands that we could trace back further. Kafka's career, his general outlook, the way he continually drifted toward marriage in spite of himself, in spite of his better judgment. Now it's time to do that. To understand Kafka, we really need to understand his father. His father was a terrifically important person in Kafka's life. The development of young Franz Kafka cannot really be understood unless we take a look at his childhood and the looming, ominous larger-than-life presence of his father, Herman. The father-son relationship is often viewed as one of a young adult wrestling with his successful older father. The story of, let's say, a man in his early 20s trying to live up to a famous or successful father's example, or attempting to escape the long shadow. This is not that story. This is the story of a boy with a father who terrified him not because his father was particularly abusive, necessarily, but because his father was so loud and brash and opinionated and domineering, and because the boy, this boy, Franz, was particularly sensitive. One of the facets of his sensitivity was to see exactly what was happening and to recognize the bind that his relationship with his father put him in. His father was not just a loud and angry presence. He was also wrong and hypocritical. And Franz recognized years later how this had all impacted him. We have some examples of a general disconnect from the earliest age. His father tended to exaggerate how difficult his own childhood had been. And he'd declare that Franz was weak by comparison, demanding that he toughen up or face reality or act like a man. He would say things like, I'll tear you apart like a fish, which would terrify Franz as it would any young child who was taking it seriously. But as Franz started to grow older, he started to recognize the narcissistic tendencies of his father and the way these had burrowed into Franz's soul. Franz, who tried to resist we know all this because Franz left behind an extraordinary document, a 47 page letter that he wrote to his father, which is as direct and incisive as any of his writings. It doesn't have the sheen of his art, but it carries the ring of truth. The letter was written in 1919 when Kafka was 36. It begins Dearest father, you asked me recently why I maintain that I am afraid of you. <laughs> What a question! What a way to begin! What a question! Kafka, Kafka goes on to say that he was tongue-tied. Esse- essentially, he couldn't respond when his father asked him that. Remember, his, his, as a young man, as a young person, Kafka had stammered, developed a stammer when he tried to respond to his father. This was the kind of fear that he had for him couldn't get the words out. One wonders if that's what led him toward writing, and and he suggests as much in the sense that he goes on to explain in the letter that this is why he's putting down his thoughts, that even though this is going to be incomplete, even writing he's not going to be able to cover everything, he's not going to be able to dig into the complexity of it, but still he was unable to respond orally when his father put that question to him. Why do you maintain that you are afraid of me? Even the question gives you some insight into that relationship, doesn't it? Not just, why are you afraid of me? Why do you maintain that you are afraid of me? Implication there being, you're lying. You're lying when you say you're afraid of me. Why do you maintain, why do you persist in saying that you are afraid of me? The answer, really... You don't need a 47-page letter. The answer is because I am afraid of you. Right? But Kafka's trying to do more. He's trying to rebuild the relationship, trying to to find something with his father, some kind of peace, some kind of truce. And so he gathers himself up and writes this 47-page letter to try to explain not just why he maintains that he's afraid of him, but why he's afraid. And what it all means. He begins with a description of their relationship in his childhood. To you, he writes, the matter always seemed very simple, at least insofar as you talked about it in front of me and indiscriminately in front of many other people. It looked to you more or less as follows You have worked hard all your life, have sacrificed everything for your children, above all for me. Consequently, I have lived high and handsome, have been completely at liberty to learn whatever I wanted, and have had no cause for material worries, which means worries of any kind at all. You have not expected any gratitude for this, knowing what children's gratitude is like, but have expected at least some sort of obligingness, some sign of sympathy. Instead, I have always hidden from you in my room among my books, with crazy friends or with extravagant ideas. If you sum up your judgment of me, the result you get is that, although you don't charge me with anything downright improper or wicked, with the exception, perhaps, of my latest marriage plan, you do charge me with coldness, estrangement, and ingratitude. And, what is more, you charge me with it in such a way as to make it seem my fault as though i might have been able with something like a touch on the steering wheel to make everything quite different while you aren't in the slightest to blame unless it be for having been too good to me. too good to me this your usual way of representing it i regard as accurate only in so far as i too believe you are entirely blameless in the matter of our estrangement but i am equally entirely blameless if i could get you to acknowledge this then what would be possible is not, I think, a new life. We're both much too old for that, but still a kind of peace. No cessation, but still a diminution of your unceasing reproaches. How did this happen? How did this happen? Two blameless people. Kafka's perhaps being generous here. His father. One wonders what he means when he says his father is blameless. He must mean that his father is only doing what he can, only doing what his personality will allow him to do. But you can hear Kafka's criticism in his description. As Maria Popova of the excellent site Brain Pickings says, quote, Kafka sees in his father everything he himself is not, a man of, quote, health, appetite, loudness of voice, eloquence, self-satisfaction, worldly dominance, endurance, presence of mind, knowledge of human nature, a certain way of doing things on a grand scale. Of course, also with all the defects and weaknesses that go with these advantages, and into which your temperament and sometimes your hot temper drive you. End quote. Papava again. The anguish resulting from this disparity of temperaments, coupled with a disparity of power between parent and child, is familiar to all who have lived through a similar childhood. The constantly enforced, with varying degrees of force, sense that the parent's version of reality is always right, simply by virtue of authority, and the child's always wrong by virtue of submission. And thus, the child comes to internalize the chronic guilt of wrongness. End quote. There are so many ways that the father child relationship can go wrong. I'm lucky that it hasn't gone wrong in my case. My father and I have a strong relationship, as much as you could have a relationship with the Buddha. <laughs> That's my father, the Wisconsin Buddha. <laughs> Someday I'll tell stories about my father, I guess. Maybe not today. I've seen it with other fathers, though. I've seen the the pressure that they put on their sons, and then the son retreats, and the father puts more pressure on the son, because why can't you speak up for yourself? Why can't you be more of a man? Why can't you build yourself up? Meanwhile, the father is the one who's putting the child down. Fathers hate to see the extension of themselves and the weakness that is associated with any child. It's a weakness that they see as a version of themselves, a reflection on themselves. Man up. Get tough. That's one particular way that the father-child relationship can go wrong. Sounds similar to the one that Kafka had. I've seen overbearing fathers. I see them now the intensity, the sports parents, but we also know other types of father-child relationships that go wrong, remote fathers, absent fathers. I went to see The Field of Dreams once, if you know that movie, the baseball movie, the Kevin Costner movie. Went to see it in college. It was a nice movie. There's an ending where the father and son play catch it's a nice way to wrap up the movie, put a happy ending on, a happy ending on everything. It's a fatherly moment, father son moment. And I was expecting that we would walk back to the dorm. We often we were seeing a lot of uh, serious movies in those days, a lot of foreign movies. We had high standards. This Field of Dreams was kind of a guilty pleasure popcorn movie. I was expecting that on our walk back to the dorm, we'd be discussing the movie, maybe saying the ending was a bit much, a bit over the top, a bit sentimental. That was my expectation, that we would analyze the movie. Instead, I got to the exit and realized my friend was not right behind me. Everyone else was exiting. I was standing there alone, wondering where my friend was. Then I walked back to the row where we had been sitting, my friend was still there. He was leaned forward, had his arms on the seat in front of us, in the row in front of us. His head was buried in his arms, and he was sobbing, heaving sobs. He had tears. He lifted his face. I put my hand on his shoulder. He lifted his face. It's full of tears, his nose was running, he was weeping. We didn't talk about the movie on the way home, obviously. We talked about him and his dad. It's powerful stuff. Back to Kafka. He says, quote, We were so different, and in our difference so dangerous to each other, that if anyone had tried to calculate in advance how I, the slowly developing child, and you, the full-grown man, would stand to each other, he could have assumed that you would simply trample me underfoot, so that nothing was left of me. Well, that did not happen. Nothing alive can be calculated. But perhaps something worse happened. And in saying this, I would all the time beg of you not to forget that I never, and not even for a single moment, believe any guilt to be on your side. The effect you had on me was the effect you could not help having. But you should stop considering it some particular malice on my part, that I succumbed to that effect. I was a timid child, For all that, I'm sure I was also obstinate, as children are. I'm sure that mother spoiled me too, but I cannot believe I was particularly difficult to manage. I cannot believe that a kindly word, a quiet taking by the hand, a friendly look, could not have got me to do anything that was wanted of me. Now, you are, after all, at bottom, a kindly and soft-hearted person. What follows will not be in contradiction to this. I am speaking only of the impression you made on the child. But not every child has the endurance and fearlessness to go on searching until it comes to the kindliness that lies beneath the surface. You can only treat a child in the way you yourself are constituted with vigor, noise, and hot temper. And in this case, this seemed to you, into the bargain, extremely suitable, because you wanted to bring me up to be a strong, brave boy. End quote. This letter is heartbreaking to read. You can still see the young boy struggling to find his voice, even at age 36, to find himself, to get out from under the oppressive weight of his father. Where was the mother? She was pulled apart, pulled into. Kafka recognized this. What an impossible situation she was in, trying to keep the peace. Have any of you been watching the Netflix series, The Crown? It's a beautiful series. Extremely well done. Television at its finest. There's a lot of similarities here with Prince Philip and his son, Prince Charles. Philip is strong. He had to deal with trauma. In his childhood, he had to become strong. Strong to the point of callousness, I would say. He wanted Charles to be tough like he was, to learn toughness, even if he wasn't born with it. He sent him to the rigorous academy where he himself had gone to school to to get tough, to to become tougher, and it was all kind of a disaster. And the queen, the mother, sees it all happening, but lets it go because Philip is the father and This is one area, child raising, where he can at least nominally be her equal. She's a sovereign of a nation, but she can put that aside and say that Philip can be the equal in the child raising. So Philip gets to make the decision, and he wants the best for his son, but he wants his son to be tough. That's his criteria, and his son is not well-equipped. His son is not in a good position to be at that school. Kafka's mother didn't have quite the same dynamic. She wasn't a queen, but she did seem to have the difficulty knowing how to intervene, not wanting to overstep her bounds, not wanting to to interfere with the father-son relationship. One can imagine that she maybe thought, well, Franz does need some toughening up, and, and Herman, my husband might know what's best. For the boy, he was a boy himself. He grew up. Maybe she just worried that by stepping in and challenging Herman, who was probably unlikely to change anyway, she might only make things worse, make him more furious, more inclined to lash out, more inclined to do more damage than he already was doing. I can kind of see that in the letter, too. Franz seems so solicitous, in his criticism. He seems to preface everything knowing that he won't reach his father if his father thinks he's being criticized. His father will blow up, not read the words on the page because his eyes will be flooded with anger. It's a horrible scenario. Never forget when you're reading about Kafka and the absurdity of authorities and the difficulties of trying to make a trying to remain a cogent individual in the face of loud and overwhelming demands for respect, or trying to understand the imposition of pointless rules, trying to navigate your way through that. In other words, never forget when you're reading just about anything Kafka ever wrote, never forget these earliest and most formative years when he was crushed under the weight of this enormous presence. Here's Popova again. Quote, Kafka recounts one particularly traumatic incident when one night as a young boy, he kept crying for water. Not, as I am certain, because I was thirsty, but probably partly to be annoying, partly to amuse myself, he explains with that learned, reality-questioning apologism he carried into adulthood, until his father grew so angry that he yanked little Franz out of bed, carried him out onto the balcony, and left him there in nothing but his nightshirt, shutting the door. Kafka writes, I was quite obedient afterwards at that period, but it did me inner harm. What was for me a matter of course, that senseless asking for water, and the extraordinary terror of being carried outside, were two things that I, my nature being what it was, could never properly connect with each other. Even years afterwards I suffered from the tormenting fancy that the huge man, my father, the ultimate authority, would come almost for no reason at all and take me out of bed in the night and carry me out into the balcony. And that meant I was a mere nothing for him. End quote. Kafka's very shrewd at untangling his father's boisterous confidence in the way it enveloped and distorted everything. Quote, You had worked your way so far up by your own energies alone, and as a result you had unbounded confidence in your opinion. That was not yet so dazzling for me as a child as later for the boy growing up. From your armchair you ruled the world. Your opinion was correct Every other was mad, wild, mishuga, not normal. Your self confidence indeed was so great that you had no need to be consistent at all, and yet never ceased to be in the right. It did sometimes happen that you had no opinion whatsoever about a matter, and as a result, all opinions that were at all possible with respect to the matter were necessarily wrong, without exception. You were capable, for instance, of running down the checks and then the Germans, and then the Jews, and what is more, not only selectively, but in every respect, until finally, nobody was left except yourself. For me, you took on the enigmatic quality that all tyrants have, whose rights are based on their person, and not on reason. End quote. I'm going to quote brain pickings again as we think not just about Kafka's childhood or any of our childhoods, but about Kafka's fiction. She writes, The most heartbreaking effect of these disorienting double standards is that the child grows utterly confused about right and wrong, for they seem to trade places constantly depending on who the doer is and comes to internalize the notion that he or she is always at fault. Instead of holding up a mirror, to validate the child's experience of reality. Such a parent instead traps the child in a funhouse maze of mirrors that never reflect an accurate or static image. Those who have lived through this know how easily it metastasizes into a deep-seated belief that one's interpretation of reality, especially when reality is ambiguous or uncertain, is always the wrong one, the faulty one, the one fully invalidated by the mere existence of another's interpretation. End quote. A funhouse maze of mirrors never reflecting the accurate, all born by this childlike, growing understanding of authority, authority that's there based on person and not on reason. Is that insight into Kafka? If that's not close enough for you, think about this next quote. This is Maria Popova again. Quote, As a consequence of this immersion in uncertainty and self-doubt, Kafka grew increasingly preoccupied with his body and health, a tangible aspect of reality. Kafka says, since there was nothing at all I was certain of, since I needed to be provided at every instant with a new confirmation of my existence, since nothing was in my very own undoubted soul possession, determined unequivocally only by me, in sober truth, a disinherited son, naturally I became unsure even of the thing nearest to me, my own body. End quote. His body, even his body has become a source of uncertainty because of the way he's trying to struggle with his father. Marriage was another difficulty. His father wanted him to get married, expected him to get married, would be the sign of a healthy, strong boy, man to get married. But they had completely different views and tastes and opinions about what would make a successful marriage. And his father couldn't stop controlling him because his father was narcissistic and needed to control him. But marriage, by definition, would almost have to mean independence. So it was bound to be a source of frustration, a source of tension, unresolvable. His father didn't approve of the engagement to Felice which is not a surprise. In other passages, Kafka shows what he was facing. He was very clear-eyed about how this affected him and how he was in a lose-lose situation. That his father's demeanor, his father's actions had imposed this lose-lose-lose situation on him. He saw that his father didn't follow his own rules. What does that do to the one who is forced to follow them? It seems... The rules were invented for him and him alone. It comes with guilt. Why do I deserve this punishment? Why am I the one who has to follow rules that are broken by the person who's making them? This is so close to Kafka's worldview that as it comes through in his fiction, it's hard not to see every, <laughs> every authority as an extension of his father. I don't mean to make his, all of his work biographical, Not my intention here, but I think it is fascinating to see where this deeply, deeply held view may have come from. Transformed his (laughs) DNA, which I did not know was possible until I read the story about the astronaut who went out to space, came back, his DNA had been altered. They learned this by comparing his DNA to his twin brother's DNA. He saw it was different. Time and space could change your DNA. Well, time with Herman Kafka could maybe change your DNA too. We'll leave that to the scientists. Kafka's rejecting being a victim here. Instead, it's all transformed into a a kind of Kafkaesque, misty, defeat, the impossibility of coming through, of there being any resolution or hope. It's like the young man who says, well, I won't like any of these jobs, so I might as well take the career I know will be the absolute worst. It's a situation that had no good answer and no good outcome, and only one person, Kafka himself, who recognizes it for what it is. Here's what I mean. This is a striking passage. He says... Your frightful, hoarse undertone of anger and utter condemnation only makes me tremble less today than in my childhood because the child's exclusive sense of guilt has been partly replaced by insight into our helplessness, yours and mine. It's not anger. It's not resentment. It's not violent retaliation. He retreats into helplessness. He has insight into helplessness. Helplessness of the authority and of the oppressed. Kafka notes that he was rarely whipped, but the threat was there. He talks about how that was worse in some ways. There were many incidents apparently where he'd get over here, take down your pants, go over go over the chair wait for me with a red, angry face, the face of the punisher, then no whipping. His father would relent. Let's see what that does. It's just as powerful. makes the person who's had to go debase himself, climb over the chair, think, what have I done? Why? why? Why am I at this man's mercy? Why am I dependent on his mercy, on his deciding not to go through with it? It's a position of subjugation either way. He says his writing, Kafka says his writing was an attempt at independence. He says that barely succeeded. Little success, he says. And then listen to this beautiful phrase. It is, after all, not necessary to fly right into the middle of the sun, but it is necessary to crawl to a clean little spot on earth where the sun sometimes shines and one can warm oneself a little. (laughs) That's so Kafka. So heartbreaking. His father was flying right into the middle of the sun. His father was declaring himself the sun. (laughs) His father had no problems, and here's poor little Franz just trying to crawl to a clean little spot on earth where the sun sometimes shines. There's this beautiful conclusion. This will be the last quote from the letter. Beautiful conclusion. Quote, In life, things don't fit together as neatly as do the proofs in my letter. Life is more than a game of patience. But after allowing for this answer, which I can't and don't want to elaborate on now, I still believe my letter contains some truth. It takes us closer to the truth, and therefore it may allow us to live and die with a gentler and lighter spirit. End quote. Now, what was his father's response to the letter? This 47-page letter. This beautiful analysis of a relationship. Well, his father never saw it. He didn't get the letter. Franz was going to send it to him, but first his sisters talked him out of it. They were worried about the effect that it would have, so he gave it to his mother, asked her to give it to him, and she never passed it along. Why not? Why not? Was it to protect her husband from the sting of seeing himself characterized like this? Protect her son from the fury of the father, or maybe the the disappointment that would come if his father refused to change? Maybe she felt that her son would that would break her son's heart if he wrote such a letter and nothing changed? Was it her instinct to absorb the pain herself and try to protect them both? Try to avoid the confrontation between them, but also not really do anything to solve the central problems that had given rise to the letter in the first place. It's probably all of these. Some combination. There was an incident with Kafka's mother that seems to summarize their relationship. Kafka wrote about it in a letter to Felice. He wrote, quote, I was just going to get undressed when my mother came in because of something trivial. And as she was leaving offered me a goodnight kiss, which hadn't happened for many years. That's right, I said. I never dared, said my mother. I thought you didn't like it. But if you like it, so do I. End quote. It's typical of Kafka, of his life, of the way everything went for him, of his whole world outlook, to have this beautiful letter never reach its target. Nothing would change, nothing could change. In the face of these impossible and absurd and limitlessly complex circumstances, one could only observe, describe, and await one's fate. But let's go back in time a bit, years before the letter was written. Here's the boy, sensitive above all else, hardwired by his childhood to think of his father in a particular way, working at the career that deadened him, coming home and trying to find some, some resuscitation, in literature, and then one night, something happens. Robertson, the biographer, describes it like this, Even when solitude was available, writing was difficult and frustrating. Kafka's diaries are full of stories that peter out after a page or less, and of lamentations and self-reproaches at his inability to write. One occasionally... On only occasionally did he manage to write successfully and without conscious effort. The greatest such occasion was the night of September 22nd to 23rd, 1912, when from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. he sat at his desk writing a single story in a single sitting. That is the only way to write, he told his diary the next day, only with such coherence, with such complete opening of body and soul. End quote. What a night, 10 p.m. to 6 a.m., writing with coherence, with complete opening of body and soul. It's a writer's dream. It's Kafka's dream. It's the, it's the relief he was looking for. It's all he wanted. I consist of literature, he said. I don't have literary tendencies. I consist of literature. And here he is on that night. Eight hours after a a full day's work, he would come home, eat, go out for a walk, and come back ready for his desk, ready for the blank page. Usually it's something he cannot abide. But this night, it all came together. Eight glorious hours of writing in a way that he knew was the way that great literature could be written. The only way. Complete opening of body and soul. What was he writing on that night? Would it surprise you if I told you that it was about a son and his father? That was the story. It's called The Judgment. It's lesser known. It's not as well known as The Metamorphosis or The Hunger Artist or In the Penal Colony, The Trial, The Castle. Not well known, The Judgment, but it's an astonishing work. It begins very realistically and gradually becomes fantastic, absurd, unrealistic, unrealistic, It's not as simple as it seems, this move. It has a completely disorienting effect on the reader. You're gradually, the rules change in the middle of the story. The rules of reality change. The fictional rules, the boundaries. The reader is gradually brought in. It's a very modernist tendency, as we're not in the world of a writer handing down scenes and characters and even opinions and judgments. We're in the world where a strange, perplexing scenario is presented to us almost without comment, maybe with ironic comment that makes things even more baffling. The effect on the reader, the reader is pulled in, invited to interpret, compelled to make sense of it all. It's a reader's project as much as a writer's in some ways as you grapple with this very realistic beginning, turning into things that couldn't be true, that couldn't happen, that don't make sense, that don't jibe with reality, forces the reader to be alert, to participate, to try to sort through suddenly, what am I being told here? Is this really happening? Is this the narrator tricking me? Is this the characters? Are we in a dream, nightmare? The character is seeing things that aren't really happening. What's going on here? At the outset of the story, The Judgment, a writer is writing to a friend in Russia about his new engagement. After he finishes, he goes to another part of the apartment to show the letter to his father, who's old and sick. And his father asks a few questions that are a little strange, not really on point. And we wonder if maybe his father has some mental impairment. Maybe he's not in full possession of his mental faculties. Then the father says, have you really got this friend in St. Petersburg? At this point, we don't know exactly what's happening. Is the son the crazy one writing a letter to someone who doesn't exist? Is the father, why Why is the father so distrustful of the son? The son takes the question in a strange way, thinking that what's happening here is that his father is upset that he's getting married. That he'll be leaving him so the son very dutiful picks up the father who's very weak and the son carefully and lovingly takes him back to his room puts him in bed and tucks him in and suddenly the father jumps to his feet stands up on the bed he's well again apparently making us wonder what's happened Was he not so sick before? Or did he suddenly heal? How? By magic? By willpower? Is it just a coincidence that he's okay now? Is the narrator telling us the truth? What's happening? The effect is completely disorienting. And in that state of disorientation, we're kind of like the sun here. Right? That makes us react in shock or horror, just as the sun is reacting. We see the The state of mind the son must have felt to see his father jump up like this. The father towers over the son and starts accusing him of all kinds of bad things, being selfish and ruthless. I'm going to spoil the ending here, but I don't consider it spoiling because the story will shock you even if you know the ending. But if you don't want to hear the ending, you can skip ahead a minute or two if you really want to wait until you yourself have a chance to read The Judgment. The father says, up to this point, you've known only about yourself. It's true that you were an innocent child, but it's even more true that you've become a devilish human being. And therefore, understand this. I sentence you now to death by drowning. And the boy runs out the door and jumps off a bridge and drowns. It's a powerful story. A summary doesn't really do it justice, the way it twists and turns and has odd details that somehow all work to drive the story forward, increasing the absurdity, ratcheting up the emotional stakes at the same time. I can't read it without losing my breath. When Kafka wrote the story, he had just started his first relationship with a woman with Felice. He's coming off this relationship with his parents, this totalitarian relationship and maybe an end is in sight in the prospect of a new life, a new love, a new marriage, a transition away from his parents and toward his own independence, if such a thing is ever possible, in a metaphysical sense. But here he is, someone in love, something in him is welling up his mind, more perceptive, more sensitive than those around him, is filled with ideas and energy and a need to overflow its walls like water pent up behind a dam, ready to overflow. And here we have it. Unbridled intensity, a pure focus, a night of literary achievement, a bursting, an unleashing, a night of pure creativity that showed him what creativity could do and what the results could be. And the focus of that night, of that art, is a father and a son. Remember, one of the quotes we read before, the passage where Franz, the child, has asked for water, His father condemns him to the balcony. You want water? Here's punishment instead. Is that so very different from the judgment? You want to help me? You want to love and be loved? You want to tuck me in? Here's your punishment. Here's your water. I condemn you to death by drowning. Now, I'm not one to try to reduce literature to life or to play the game of connect the dots between this person and that literary character. Usually, I don't care. Literature stands on its own or it doesn't. But in this case, I'm fascinated. The power, the stranglehold that Kafka's father had over him, the way that it affected this sensitive young mind, and the consequences that that strange and toxic alchemy had on the rest of literature, it's hard to overstate. So it's interesting to me that Kafka transforms this relationship or advances it or pushes it into something artistic and then cites it as the best writing night of his life. The night when his body and soul were at one, completely open, pouring itself onto the page. It's the best writing night of his life. And if that's the case, I'm comfortable saying it was the best night of his life for this man who consists of literature. There's nothing else for him. He had very few rivals for the best nights of his life. He was sometimes happy with his friends. He had a few nights of what we might call romance with one of the four women in his life. I don't think anything pleased him, gave him the relief that this night did. His happiest moments, I think, came when he was Alone with his pen, writing by lamplight, finding some way to express the truths that he felt and turning it into literature, which he loved. Two months after this night of writing the judgment, two months later, Franz Kafka wrote The Metamorphosis, the astonishing story of a bureaucrat who wakes up one day to find that he has become a giant insect overnight. And it has the same hyper-realism, the same dry style, the same naturalistic descriptions of a fantastical event as the judgment. All those elements that make Kafka's style so effective and so modern. Gregor Samsa, bureaucrat, is suddenly an insect. And he notices how his new limbs work. He has to figure out how to turn in bed. And he's worried about things like making it to the train on time so that he won't get yelled at by his boss. It's such a great read, so funny and pathetic, comic and tragic, a revelation for literature. Everyone should read it if they haven't yet and reread it if it's been a while. There's a father in that story as well. The father throws rotten apples at Gregor. It's a heartbreaking detail. But knowing what we know from the letter, from from our knowledge of Kafka's biography, it's not so surprising that that was what his father did in the story. And, and knowing what we know from the letter, neither is the metamorphosis itself. Remember the passage. We read it already. I'll, re- I'll read it again. Since there was nothing at all I was certain of, since I needed to be provided at every instant with a new confirmation of my existence, since nothing was in my very own Undoubted soul possession, Determined unequivocally only to me, In sober truth, a disinherited son, Naturally, I became unsure Even of the thing nearest to me, My own body. A body. A body that suddenly Makes you uncertain. A body Suddenly changed to an insect. Metaphorically, As I said, I don't think this kind of focus on the life should in any way detract from the literature. As Kafka wrote, literature isn't an escape from life. It can't be, because literature is life. But for me, knowing the deep sources of Kafka's darkest fears, to see how his struggle to survive and thrive after a childhood that was almost designed to be the most impossible one for him, given his personality, almost designed to take the sensitive boy with his inclination toward inadequacy and guilt and his gifted powers of discerning the truth and his commitment to perfection and to being clear about what was happening around him, to saddle such a boy with a father almost designed to put the... It's, it's as if the whole thing was designed to put the spinning gears of Kafka's genius into motion, to see all this... And then to see how he makes those into the wondrous pieces of fiction that he does, I find it all inspiring. I find it worthy of celebration and reflection. It's not a reduction of literature, in my view. It gives us a deeper appreciation for the task that was at hand and the craftsmanship of the artist who spun this flax into gold. Two months before writing his amazing story, The Metamorphosis, this world masterpiece, our author sat down in a single night to write a single story, The Judgment, where a son's father emerged from sickness to rise up and condemn his son to death. And in that condemnation, a genius found new life. (laughs) Uh, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. Franz Kafka. What a gift he was to the world. Remember, you can find us at historyofliterature.com and facebook.com slash literature or slash Literature. Sorry. Send us an email if you'd like. I'm always happy to hear from you. And I try to respond to all of them. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.